Welcome to your High Vibration Life podcast with Robin Openshaw, also known online as the Green Smoothie Girl. When you're living your high vibration life, you're healthier in every way. You're more productive, creative, peaceful, and loving. Your high vibration life is calling. And now your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw and welcome back to Your High Vibration Life. We have been so busy here at Green Smoothie Grill. It's getting to be the end of summer here. My two two of my children just got back from a humanitarian trip to Zambia in Africa where they worked with AIDS orphans and they saw some really sobering things and they got to go do things that kids in the first world don't usually get to see and experience. And they came back very humbled, which was a good thing. It's a good thing when they live uh, in a nice neighborhood with people who have access to education and first world medicine. And it was an amazing experience for my children. I've been traveling a lot and I love summer here so much, partly because in the wintertime, the air quality gets really bad here in Utah, and I can go up to Sundance. It's about 10 minutes from my home, and I can ski, but 98% of the time, I'm down here in the muck, so I cling to summer. I'm always sad when it ends. We are coming right up on the launch of my book, Vibe, and I hope you've gotten your copy on pre-order because the free audiobook coming with it is about to end. My publisher is going to make us end that little promotion, so make sure you go to greensmoothiegirl.com slash high vibe to pre-order your copy of the book vibe and get the audiobook for free right now. So hope you take advantage of that. I'm excited about our podcast interview today. I just barely met Dr. Thomas Cowan. He is an MD and he's studied and written about a lot of subjects in medicine, including nutrition, anthroposophical medicine. You're going to find out what anthroposophy is and herbal medicine. He's, he's got a new book, How and Why to Eat More Vegetables. And he's going to talk to us about the importance of vegetable diversity and the role of vegetables in the ancestral diet. You know, I'm very passionate about vegetables and greens being our highest vibration foods, raising the frequencies. That's our goal here on the podcast to help raise your frequency, help you live in higher vibes. And he's also published a book about the role of and function of the heart And he has co-published with Sally Fallon of the Nourishing Traditions book I read many years ago, probably 25 years ago. And he wrote a book on baby and child care with Sally Fallon about the Weston Price ways. He might touch on a little bit of the research of of Dr. Weston Price. So welcome to our show, Dr. Thomas Cowan. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, it's just delightful to have you here. I'm I'm really excited to hear a little about your garden. You have a huge garden, and you're literally bottling vegetables. Tell us tell us about that. What's what's behind? What's the inspiration for talk, Dr. Cowan's garden? Uh, the inspiration for Dr. Cowan's garden was basically I had over the years developed a scheme for what the what I would call the healthy or normal human diet is. And what I discovered is that two of the three parts of the diet were we have basically uh, correct in a sense, we have access to those foods. But the third part, we even in a place like San Francisco, the Bay Area, and even for a dedicated gardener like myself over the years, it was very hard to create 
a truly uh, traditional vegetable diet or the vegetable component of the diet. And so I set out to do something about that and I was given access to a garden to use and it just kind of went from there. So tell us more about what you grow. So the principle of the, of the what I would call a traditional diet, and of course I didn't make this up myself, but that there's essentially three components. Uh, and again, I got this, a lot of it from looking at the work of Weston Price, but I also lived in Africa for two years. And I also have been a student of, of Native American diets and traditional diets for you know, almost four decades. So as far as I can tell, with very few exception, the first part of the diet of traditional diets was some sort of animal food. Uh, according to Price, even though he looked, he never found a completely vegan traditional diet of where the people were healthy. So this includes things like grass-fed animal products and buffalo or wild fish, sometimes insects, sometimes dairy food, eggs, you, you name it. It comes from an animal. Everybody ate it. And that's where the proteins and the fats in the diet come from. That's essentially the bodybuilding part of the diet. And the, one of the things that's uh, at least partly because of nourishing traditions in Sally Fallon over the years, we now have access to a reasonable facsimile of those foods. It's maybe not the same as the wild fish that the Native Americans ate or the buffalo, but we have grass-fed meat and wild fish and pastured eggs and all that stuff. I think it has it has gotten a lot better. And when I learned about... Weston A. Price Foundation 25 years ago and was reading her work, Nourishing Traditions, based on her father's research. And we actually have my biological dentist coming on really soon. And all the biological dentists, you know, hearken back to Weston Price's work. And if you don't know who he is, he was a dentist who traveled all over the world and looked at indigenous people's and what they ate, the people who had no dental problems, big, wide, strong jaws, no real degenerative disease, and he studied what they ate. Is that a fair representation of Weston yes. Price? He had heard, he was a dentist and an orthodontist and one of the inventors of root canals, believe it or not. That is um, ironic. It is ironic. And then he actually, later in his career, he said the root canals are no good. But anyways, he had heard that there was people out there with perfect teeth. And, you know, over my career, I have asked probably 100,000 people at various lectures, how many people have perfect teeth? And it's probably less than 10 in this country. So uh, we have 100% of the people who have basically crumbling teeth. And he had heard, he saw that in his practice and had heard that there was people out there with perfect teeth, meaning they never lose a tooth, they never have orthodontic problems, they never get cavities in their entire life. And he set out to find out if it was true. And he found 14 groups all over the world. It's important to realize that not all the groups, not all traditional people had perfect teeth. So he actually studied only the ones who I would say got it right. And my point is, if you study what they ate, even though they lived all over the place and had a diverse diet, they all use the same principles, which is what I wrote about in my book. 
Yeah. And then a lot happened between the time, I believe the 1950s, when Dr. Price was deep in his research, he's published volumes of research and it really contradicts a lot of what modern dentistry is doing, but we just stick to the nutrition part. You know, my problem, you know, as I was studying this in the 1990s, early uh, 1990s, is I was looking at the sources of eggs and meat out there and wasn't too impressed and certainly didn't trust those sources to be anywhere near what these indigenous peoples were eating out there just because of, you know, we didn't have in the early 90s, we didn't have as much problem with Roundup as we do now, half a half a billion tons of Roundup being dropped on our crops. But, but you know, just all the nitrites and nitrates and, and steroids and hormones and antibiotics in our animal products. And so I've been very heavily plant-based for 25 years and, and don't regret it. But Weston Price definitely found there were plenty of plants being eaten as well. What they weren't eating for sure, one thing we know for sure, because, you know, I think you're right. I think Weston Price Foundation has really helped support, you know, more natural ways of raising animals for us to eat. And it's there, those forms, wild caught, organic, free range are a lot more available. Uh, They are still extremely expensive. And when the government supports for these animal products fall out, we may have some issues and it's probably a good idea if all of us learn how to eat more plants, but that's where Dr. Cowan's garden comes in. I want to talk about your study of wild and perennial vegetables. And I think this is where anthroposophy comes in, right? Will you talk a bit about that? The second group was seed food, which includes seeds, nuts, grains, and beans. And then the third group was plants, um, vegetables and fruit, about 80 to 90 percent vegetables, 10 to 20 percent fruit. And, you know, the point of that that's different is if you look, for instance, at a book called Tending the Wild or what what I learned from living in Africa and what Price wrote is the average number of plants or what we would call vegetables that an indigenous group of people ate per year was about 100 to 120 per year, and about 10 to 15 per day. And about half of these were wild vegetables or perennial vegetables, which are vegetables that live more than a year. And the rest of them were sort of the typical garden annual vegetables that people know about, like squash and zucchini and greens and things like that. The the point of of, of this whole project was the wild and perennial vegetables have more nutrients and less sugars than your typical annual vegetable. The role of the vegetables in the diet is sort of is sort of like what we think of as vitamin pills. They're not for necessarily for protein, they're not for building bodies, they're for disease prevention and phytonutrients and vitamins and minerals. And perennial and, and wild vegetables have more of those. They're more concentrated. And the average American has never eaten a wild or perennial vegetable in their life. And they typically eat 10 plants in their entire life, you know, of which ketchup is one and french fries is another. <laughs> the, the important disease prevention vegetable diversity component, which is what humans have evolved with, just doesn't exist even in the Bay Area. So we set out, we meaning me and my family, and I'm the head gardener, 
to grow perennial vegetables and to source wild vegetables and make them somehow available to a modern diet. That, in a nutshell, is the point of, of Dr. Cowan's garden. Okay. So give us some example of what the wild and perennial vegetables are because so you just told us and a lot of people won't know this. A lot of people don't garden, they don't think about, you know, what kind of vegetables, but you're talking about the annuals like tomatoes and greens and other things. Talk about some examples of wild and perennial vegetables because you just said most Americans never eat any. Yeah. So here's one example. Everybody maybe they don't know the name, but there's a family of plants called the brassicas family, and this includes cabbage and kale and broccoli and collards and mustard and a whole lot of other ones. Those are all annual vegetables. And annual vegetables meaning they live out their life in a year, and I'm not – it's all saying there's anything wrong with eating all those brassicas greens. I eat them myself pretty much every day. On the other hand, there's a – plant called a tree collard, which is indigenous to Africa. And this is a brassicus family that, uh, let's just say it like this, has forgot how to go to seed. Therefore, it will grow like a tree and live for 12 to 20 years. And it, it produces, it has, it's a very deep-rooted uh, plant because it's a tree and therefore, it's able to mine the soil for nutrients that an annual plant doesn't have access to. Uh, so over time, you get this, you know, tree, big bushy-like thing, which has very good-tasting collard green-type leaves, which have, you know, more calcium than any other green, more phytonutrients. It concentrates anthocyanins and other purple colored phytonutrients in the leaves. It's basically taking the brassicus family to another level. The other thing I would point out is when you, when you grow tree collards like we do in our garden, you basically, so you started from cuttings because like I said, it doesn't go to seed. You plant it, you put some eggshells and compost and every year around the plant, and you don't have to do anything to the plant for the next 15 years except harvest a bushel of, of leaves from each plant. So it's very environmentally friendly. It's not affected by any diseases. You don't have to disturb the soil. So you get this ecosystem around the plant, which is basically mining the soil for nutrients and it's just one, probably one of the most nutritious greens you could possibly eat and more ecologically friendly. And again, if you go to the even the best farmer's market in, the, in San Francisco or Utah or wherever, I can almost guarantee you will not find any tree cow. So that's one plant. Here's another plant is called Genura procumbens, which we have growing in the garden. It also goes by the name of longevity spinach, which already tells you something about it. And its other name is Okinawan spinach because it actually originates from the island of Okinawa. And it's the predominant green that, that the Okinawans eat. And of course, they, they have this traditional diet. They eat fish, they eat rice, and they eat Okinawan spinach, among other vegetables. Uh, so 
you can already tell that it is a longevity green. And then very interesting, if you actually do an analysis of the plant, which is one way to understand a plant, it, it has approximately the same anti-diabetic effect as the conventional drug called metformin with none of the side effects. So basically, you're eating this perennial green leafy plant, which again is very easy to grow because you don't do much after you plant it in the soil except sort of pat it on the back and look at it. Um, and it's a highly nutritious and highly medicinal and I would say not bad tasting, although I would say that the switch that we've made with vegetables is breeding them for high sugar content and lower nutrient content because the nutrients and the phytochemicals, they typically don't taste so good because that's how the plant uses to get, you know, keep the insects from eating them. Those are the, the substances that prevent disease in us. So it is true that when you get into wild and perennial vegetables, the taste is stronger but and the sugar content is less. But that is actually what you want in your diet. You want more nutrients, less sugar. And that's what perennial vegetables do. And the other thing is you don't, if you're going to eat 15 in a day, it's not like you eat a whole bowl full of kale. You eat, you know, three or four leaves of kale and three or four leaves of genera and three or four leaves of Malabar spinach. And I could go on until you get 20 different vegetables. And what you've created is the broadest spectrum possible of every nutrient that a human being could possibly use. And I always say the plants are smarter than the best doctor or the best chemist. And so if you eat them all, all the colors, all the parts of the plant, roots, leaves, flowers, stems, etc., you will make sure that you get all the nutrients that a human being needs. Whereas if you just eat one, you hope you have to be lucky that that plant has what you need. This is fascinating. And one of the things I, I read um, one of your blog posts when I was studying you and, and considering asking you to come on the show is you talked about, I actually got two major things from it. One was that perennial plants, and that was news to me, are far more nutrient dense because they, since they grow for longer than just a season, they put roots down deep. And then you talked about, I'd love for you to flesh this out. You talked about how spreading your wild and perennial vegetable consumption throughout the day is so much better than just like drinking your one quart of green smoothie. It sounds to me like if you get those nutrient dense greens and vegetables several times during the day, it's really impacting your health more. Is that right? The, the, again, the goal is you eat some you know properly grown animal foods. And I 100% agree with you if the only animal food you have is is caged chickens fed antibiotics and and whatever else they feed them, I wouldn't eat that ever at all. So that's not real food, nor is, you know, chemically soaked rice or, you know, Roundup sprayed wheat, none of that food. Neither, by the way, would be Roundup sprayed or chemically grown carrots or beets. I mean, I wouldn't eat that unless I was starving or had no other option, I guess. 
Uh, so we're talking about the best way to to tend the soil, prepare the soil. I mean, that's what we do in our garden. It's you know, it's it's all about uh, feeding the soil, so the soil feeds the plants. So then when you do that and you're trying to eat 15 different plants a day, the, this, this is like feeding yourself small amounts of nutrient-dense foods throughout the day. And yeah, it's better to do it all throughout the day rather than all at once. Um, I mean, I don't know that I have any research to prove that, but that is the traditional way of doing it. And again, it's, you know, we... I just read something, a, a CNN report of an anthropologist who went and lived with a indigenous hunter-gatherer group in Africa. And he said that they eat 400 different plants and animals per year and about 40 to 50 per day. And believe me, I've tested my numbers and I have about 30 to 40 per day. And if you do that, you better eat them a little bit throughout the day because you can't eat that many all at once. By the way, they increased their microbiome diversity in three days by 20%. I mean, the holy grail of what constitutes a healthy person is the more you have a viable, diverse ecosystem in your gut, by and large, the healthier you'll be. It's a bit like if you, you, know, if you go to the, the plains uh, you know, the Great Plains in the United States 300 years ago, there was, if you take it one acre, there was literally hundreds of plants and animals living on that acre, and it was incredibly diverse, and the soil was 12 feet deep and the best soil on the planet. And if you fast forward to now, the only thing that's growing on there is corn or soybeans. Everything else is dead. There's no microbiological activity in the soil. And that's exactly what's happened to human beings. And the point of this is each different class of microbe apparently feeds on a different plant, which is only to be expected. So if you just eat corn, you just get the corn-eating microbes. The corn-eating microbes make you sick, make you fat, and make you diabetic. Whereas if you eat leeks and beets and tree collards and ashitaba and genera procumbens and malabar spinach and summer savory, and I could go on and on, you get all these organisms that like to live on all these different plants, some like roots, some like this phytonutrient, and you create a diverse flourishing ecosystem. And the ecosystem is your immune system, basically is your nutrient producing factory in your gut. And as far as it goes, that's as close as we can get to the definition of a healthy person. That's really uh, news to a lot of people. A lot of people think that the way to have diversity in their gut is to take a probiotic pill. Um, We recently had Dr. Joel Furman on the show, and he talked about how eating legumes uh, gives you that space to for for the microbiome to flourish and thrive those are just some some plants um but you're saying eating a lot of different plants gives a lot of different probiotics 
a place to reside in the gut so that you have really wide diversity against the bad guys when the viruses and bacteria comes around, right? Yes. And actually, according to the Human Microbiome Project, the number one plant that encourages, uh, you know, microbiome diversity, believe it or not, are leeks. Uh, and you, so there's leeks, garlic, onion, and, you know, at our Dr. Cowan's garden, we we make leek powder and we also make wild ramp powder. And wild ramps are the wild version the sort of genetic precursor to leeks, garlic, and onions. So you can even take it back a step and use, you know, the the originator, the, the blueprint for leeks or onions. And that even creates an even more diverse microbiome. That's the point. Well, I'm actually sitting here, right here on my desk. I have a bottle of your leek powder and your burdock root. And because I read that on your blog, must have been a while ago that you wrote it, either that or I didn't fully understand it, but about spread these throughout your day. And I think you're you're definitely clearly saying here, get a lot of diversity. I've been just shaking a spoonful of them up in water, shaking it up and drinking it at my desk. And I've been thinking about before you came on the show, how will my readers our listeners on our podcast, how will they feel about this? Because I'll tell you, Dr. Cowan, I think they're delicious. A spoonful of leeks and a spoonful of burdock root. And and I've got some of your kale and then I've got one of your blends. And I just sort of randomly put a scoop of two of them in some water and drink it. And I think it's delicious, but we talk about this a lot on the show, how as you're building your body out of higher vibration cells, you know, and you're, when you're clearing the junk out of your cells and you're eating cleaner and maybe you're vibrating at 10 Hertz higher than you were, you are more attracted to these foods. A leek powder in water tastes good to you. So I was drinking it and thinking, I think it's great. But a lot of times when we put people on our detox where they're eating nothing but, you know, cleansing plant foods for 26 days, people will say, I don't like this and I don't like that. And, you know, what I like just hasn't really been an issue since I adopted a whole foods diet many years ago. Tell tell me about why leeks, why burdock root, why some of these, why some of these vegetables are so powerful. I get not a buzz. It's more like a sustainable energy when I drink these shake shaken up in water. You know, all of the different uh, vegetables in our line have a, have a purpose or have a, a story you might say. And so one of the ideas is just, and we also put them in these uh, jars called mirin glass, which are deep purple and have a certain thickness. And so they only let UVA light in, which, believe it or not, increases the vibrational energy of the contents within. And I know that's a big statement, but the, the way that I can prove that is we, we had heard that things don't degrade inside mirin jars. So we a couple of years ago, I took two pretty much identical cherry tomatoes, put one in a mirin jar and one in a mason jar, put it on the counter. And in a month, the one in the glass jar, the mason jar was all mush and moldy and like you would expect. The one in the mirin jar lasted six months and it still looked as fresh as the day we picked it. Uh, so that convinced me that that if you put things in the jar, uh, these these light enhancing jars, in other words, only the UVA 
which is the sort of increasing the vibrational energy of the food. If you put them in there, they don't degrade and they retain their smell, taste, and, and freshness over time. Now, burdock is one of the most medicinal plants known. It, it shows up in basically every herbal cancer medicine, like the Hoxie formula and the Esiac formula, the expanded version, all have burdock. It, it cleans the blood, it stimulates liver detoxification, and it's not available to most people. So, you know, we wanted this to be available to anybody. It's great, you know, in water and soup and eggs and in smoothies, whatever you want to put it in. Leeks are, you know, like I said, the point of that was the number one food to stimulate diversity of the microbiome, according to the Human Microbiome Project, was the daily consumption of leeks. I even had a conversation with a gastroenterologist who uses food, and she said, if I can get my patients to eat leeks on a daily basis, their Crohn's colitis and irritable bowel syndrome almost always gets better. So that was the reason, besides that I like to grow leeks, they're easy to grow, they're a beautiful plant, uh, so I just like being around them. You know, we all have different reasons for doing things and growing stuff. So leeks are fun to be around, they're easy to grow, and they're, they make everything taste better. Leeks are amazingly wonderful food. Well, I've been putting these in water, but now I'm realizing I'm going to put a little scoop of these for the diversity reasons that you're talking about. I hadn't really thought about putting it in my green smoothie. I just thought I'll just add it to my water when I'm drinking water. But I'm looking at the burdock root and it says burdock is a potassium rich tuber renowned as a blood detoxifier and a blood sugar regulator. It's low in calories and it has a sweet parsnip like flavor. I like that. That very, it very well describes what it tastes like. And the ingredients are 100% organic burdock root, nothing else. And so I love that you're growing these in the U.S., and that you're so committed to quality. I have a couple more questions for you, but since readers are listening to this and going, I would say readers because we have a blog and because, you know, I'm coming out with my 15th book. And so that's been 10 years, but our podcast is new in the last year. I guess listeners is more appropriate, but I've been, I've been taking notes and I'm thinking tree collards, Okinawan spinach, I want, I want these for my green smoothies. And of course I can't go to the grocery store and get these. And you're telling me that these wild and perennial plant foods are really not available in the stores. Like, you know, nobody would buy them because nobody knows what to do with them. But these are super high vibration cell building materials. And so I'm going to become a long time customer of yours because what you're doing is just, it's just not out there. You just, you can't find this. And so we reached out to you before I ever met you, we reached out to you and said, would you give our, would you give our listeners a discount. And so we will put in the show notes, greensmoothiegirl.com slash podcast. And then you'll find this episode, greensmoothiegirl.com slash podcast. You can get the link there. And on that link, you can use a coupon code smoothie. 
Okay, so use the coupon code SMOOTHIE for 15% off your first purchase. So that's pretty exciting. Um, I'm going to go pick up all these uh, perennial plants that I've just heard from you that I've never tasted. I didn't know that there were vegetables and greens that I hadn't I hadn't tried. Tell me about, this was a new one on me too. What's Ashitaba and why is it a, such a big deal in your book? So... Ashitaba is native is a is a plant in the Angelica family, and it's the only edible Angelica. Now, the most famous of the Angelica family is a plant called Angelica Archangelica, which has an auspicious name because Angelica means gift from the angels, and Archangel Angelica Archangelica is gift from the archangels to the angels to the human being. So that's a pretty auspicious name. It was supposedly the only substance that was successful against the plague in Middle Europe. So it has a very illustrious history. And Ashitaba is the only edible version of this. It originates in Asia, mostly Philippines, Indonesia, and Japan. If you look at the nutrient content, it's, it's about double pretty much all the nutrients as kale or collards or onions or asparagus, whether it's potassium or B vitamins. It has something called nerve growth factor. But the thing that really was got me interested was it has another name like most plants, which is called tomorrow leaf. And that's because if you cut the leaf, if you go back tomorrow, there'll be a new leaf in its place, which has means that plant has incredible vitality. Because unlike you, if I cut your finger off or my finger off, my guess is it wouldn't grow a new finger in the place because we don't have as much vitality as that plant does. Now, the question then is, if you have such strong growth forces like Ashitaba does, how do you stop it from getting cancer? Uh, it's like a bit of a Zen riddle. And the answer is if you actually cut the stem, it, it literally oozes out this yellow goopy sap, which I've never seen in a plant before. And that sap has a chemical in it or a family of chemicals called calcones, C-H-A-L-C-O-N-E-S. And my prediction is, is once somebody figures out, once the research community figures out how to synthesize calcones, it will become the next hot chemotherapy drug because the calcones prevent excessive growth. In other words, they have a cancer preventative effect as well as they make people look younger and they make your hair look younger and they reverse diabetes and a lot of other things. So essentially the plant couples this excessive or strong growth forces with, with substances which make the growth forces become a plant instead of just a tumor. And that really is the model for what health is. We don't, we don't want to be have no growth forces, no rejuvenation forces, because that's kind of a sickness but we have to keep those growth forces in check. And Ashitaba, in a sense, shows us the way to do that. So it's kind of a living metaphor of what robust health is. 
strong growth forces, the forces to keep it in check, strong nutrients, you know, in a otherwise beautiful plant. So that's what got me interested. And the other thing that got me interested is a Japanese guy said, there's no way you can get it to grow in California. And of course, gardening being the competitive sport that it is, uh, that got me uh, interested to prove him wrong. And I'm at least partly on my way to doing that. You're going to win an Olympic gold medal in Ashitaba growing. So can we get that Uh, in a jar? Yes. Although truth be told, we typically run out because it's, it's, it's still, it's not, it's not something you can purchase or get from any local organic farmer or anything. So we literally have to grow every bit ourselves, us and a friend named John, who's a biodynamic gardener, so that's the only two sources I know, and we are actively working on it, finding out that we have to save the seeds ourselves and then plant them right away. And it's it's like a riddle to get it to grow enough so that we have enough for everybody. Uh, we just put up a few hundred jars a, few, a week ago and they sold out, but we will have more uh, as time goes on and hopefully by Next spring, maybe we'll have uh, not an unlimited. Well, so we will see when my listeners go to check out uh, the show notes, greensmoothiegirl.com slash podcast, Dr. Cowan's uh, episode here. We'll see if there's any Ashitaba left when you go check it out, my friends. We do have an email list. And when things like Ashitaba and we have a product called Perennial Greens, which is a mixture of tree collards and genera and moringa leaves and uh, a perennial leaf vegetables. When they go up for sale, we send out an email. And so if you check your email and get on right away, you'll usually be able to get some. Wonderful. Well, what really struck me as you were talking about the history of these wild and perennial foods is how poetic and mystical your discussion of them is, and it's so different than the way we talk about foods in such a transactional way. There's little about it that's beautiful um, as we've gone further and further down a path towards making our foods more unnatural. So I love that. And it's probably a good place to ask you about anthroposophy or anthroposophical medicine. Tell us about that a bit. So, you know, I got my start as a doctor, but through anthroposophical medicine, which is the medicine of Rudolf Steiner. Steiner was a philosopher by training. He was a Gertinistic scientist, and he was a lot of other things. And he had a way of understanding what I guess some people would call the spiritual world, which is, I would just say, sophisticated. And out of that, he wanted to put it into practical use. So he created essentially three or more endeavors, one of which was anthroposophical medicine, one of which was Waldorf schools, second largest private school movement in the world. And the third of which was biodynamic gardening or agriculture, which is probably the largest organic gardening farming movement in the world. And even in Germany, there are public hospitals where all the physicians have to be trained in this very esoteric uh, philosophy of anthroposophical medicine. 
And so if you think about it, for one person who had no training as a doctor or a farmer or a, a teacher to write the curriculum K through 12, write the whole pharmacopoeia of medicine and give explicit directions on how to run a large scale farming operation is, is anyways more than I could do <laughs> and more than anybody else I've ever met. So that got me interested in what, what this guy knows, how he knows it, what I can learn from him. Not that I would say everything he says is, is right. Although, as I often say, before I say he wasn't right, I have to have a good reason to know that he wasn't right because he knew a lot of things that I don't have access to. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. And just when I think I know quite a lot about nutrition and wellness, I discover that there's someone out there teaching people about the Angelica and Brassica families and putting it into these amazing jars that don't let oxidating light and air in. And so you're doing great work in the world. And I'm really excited to have been able to maybe bring your work to more people. Again, everyone, if you want to get your hands on some burdock root and leek powder and ashitaba and some of the other plants that Dr. Cowan is growing that go far beyond any of the other foods available to you in terms of nutrient density and vibrational support for living a high vibration life. Go check it out at greensmoothiegirl.com slash podcast. And Dr. Cowan's generously offering us 15% off with the discount smoothie. So Dr. Cowan, you are a powerhouse of knowledge and it's more obscure bodies of knowledge that I'm glad you're keeping alive. God bless you for preserving seeds in the age of Monsanto, trying to crush that and for keeping these kinds of foods alive when 99.9% of us don't know anything about them. So thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, I just want to say you were a wonderful host and I, I appreciate your the way you went about this. Well, we like to use our critical thinking skills around here, and we like to remind our listeners to use theirs because so much of the information out there has been sort of bought and sold and paid for. And I love when people are going back to our spiritual roots um, and food and spirituality are so linked and you're just a perfect example of that. So I'm really excited to go get more of your products and thank you so much for everything you're doing in the world. Okay. Thank you for the show. Thank you. 